The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Getting In. Do you ever wonder how you or your child can stand out in that ultra-competitive Ivy League admissions process? Um, I talked about this a little bit last week, but the answer really is developing and distinguishing excellence. So in a continuation of that discussion, we're going to be answering your questions about what a distinguishing excellence is and how students can both identify as distinguishing excellence that they might have already or uh, what they can do to work towards developing one. And then Kathy Ruby, who's the former Dean of Student Financial Aid at St. Olaf College, she's going to be back. She's been on before, but she's here today to discuss the important question of whether or not a student should work well in college. But first, for those students who are aspiring to a professional field of study, something like maybe you have a child who wants to be a vet, maybe somebody you're listening and you want to be a doctor, um, maybe you want to go into pharmacy or physical therapy, those are some good examples of um, a more professional focus to your studies. And I have here with me today former senior admissions officer at Cornell, at UMass Amherst, at Smith and Mount Holyoke, lots of different places. Also, currently my colleague, Marge Southworth, and she's going to be here to say, share her advice on high school curriculum and extracurricular activities and other things to really be thinking about as you prepare to embark on a professional studies uh, course yourself. So welcome, Marge. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to read uh, very early on in the show a couple of months ago, we actually got a question in um, from a mom, Angela, and she wanted to know if in a future show we would focus on high school students who think they want to pursue a professional degree and what tips do we have for high school coursework, for outside activities, for researching and selecting an undergraduate program, all of these different things. And I thought it was such a great question that we decided to actually create an entire segment around it. And that's what brings us uh, to this topic today. And in, in talking through this and thinking about this, and we've both worked with students who want to go on to a more pre-professional um, program when they get into college, I think one of the big questions that comes up frequently is around high school coursework. So my first question to you, Marge, is do you think that sh- students should really specialize in high school if they know what they want to study in college? Okay, so when you use the word specialized, I'm assuming that, you know, I've seen schools that have a special track for students who want to do engineering or a special track for students who are interested in the health professions. And I personally don't, and professionally, don't have any problem with those programs. I think this is what I want them, what I want your 
listeners to keep in mind when they're thinking about them is, number one, these cannot detract from your core academic classes. So as long as the child is able to get English and math and language and science and history slash social science, and then these specialized programs become outside of those five courses, and I think it could be great. I think it could be great, and I think right. it could be fabulous, in fact. But um, I think that specialization that replaces a math course or specialization that replaces even a history social science course or a language course, which I see more often, is not a good idea in preparation for any college and especially for students who want to do a pre-professional program. Right. So I think some of those specialized programs you're talking about, um, magnet programs, which we're starting to see crop up a little bit more frequently. And um, I do often get parents asking me, well, what do you think about this magnet program? My student is really interested in engineering and they have a great math science magnet program nearby. And I think your point is really an excellent one. If you're looking to evaluate a magnet program, one of the things you want to pay attention to is, are they offering all of the five major subject areas? Because we know that colleges want to see that. And if they can do magnet and continue to offer those, then it's a great program. If it's you're going to be doing those that coursework and it's going to exclude things like foreign language or history, um, things like that, then probably not such a great program. And, Agreed. You know, and then I think another good point, is that let's say you're just at a regular high school, they don't have any kind of magnet program. It can be tempting to just take coursework that's really interesting if you're the Mm. student or, you know, if you're a parent and you see that your student is doing really well in some areas and not so well in others and clearly the areas they're doing well in are represent what they are going to be focusing on moving forward. Um, colleges want to see you broadly educated, and a lot of these pre-professional programs expect to see the same. So while they might expect to see more advanced level coursework in the areas um, of the curriculum that are related to that future study, they don't want you to miss out on the other pieces when you're in high school. College is when All you right. get to specialize, basically. Um, What about community college classes in high school to supplement or replace high school coursework? I feel like students with a pre-professional bent seem more likely to go that route or or to think think about that. And what do you think about that as an option? I think this is a really interesting topic. So what I have seen in my professional career is that the community college option on the high school level can be great for what I consider a small number of students, but not for a large number of students. So one of the things that plays into my opinion is that it depends upon where you're going to apply to school, whether those community college courses will be recognized if your goal is to get some credit towards advanced standing. My big problem which I've seen happen several times, is that if that community college-level course is going to be something that will fulfill a prerequisite for your professional degree, medical school, uh, pharmacy school, or veterinary school, that I have known students who have not fared well in the professional school application process when one of the prerequisite courses was taken before high school graduation at a community college. So perhaps the student's not mature enough academically to do as well as they might have done in that course in college. 
Um, perhaps the particular medical school has found that in their research for who does well at their school and who doesn't, that typically the student who completes prerequisites at a community college level don't fare as well as some students who complete it um, after high school graduation or even um, before high school graduation. So I am really a professional who will make, give an opinion on that situation on a case-by-case basis. But in general, it makes me really nervous. It makes me, the other one that plays into this, which I'll just tack on to our conversation, is there are some medical schools that will actually take AP credit towards the completion of a prerequisite course. And, you know, if you are a stellar student, then that may work great because it will shorten your time in the undergraduate um, arena and it will really help in your um, professional school application. But in general, even in that case, if your college is going to give you advanced standing or exempt you from chemistry 101 because of your AP score, then I want you to think really hard about whether it doesn't make a sense to take that uh, chemical uh, intro to chem 101 again and mm-hmm. get an amazing grade and then have that be the focus of your professional um, school application. So I don't know whether that's clear, but um, those are some of my worries when I hear about either community college or AP and pre-professional interest. Right, because one of the things that you mentioned the other day when we were talking about this is the fact that, um, you know, maybe a student tries that um, a, a college course in high school and it's something that will be a prerequisite for their professional program and then they take it, they don't do that well. They take it a second time in college and they do much better, but a lot of those programs will only consider the grade you earned the first time you took it. So you don't get to kind of replace that grade and that's a, a big potential uh, problem for students as well. Yeah, and I would venture that the only thing that I would say about that statement is there's certainly some medical schools that will let you take it again. Mm-hmm. But if you've got this forethought about I'm in high school, this is what I want to do, I'm now in college, this is what I want to do, then I want you to think very carefully because I've seen too many students I've worked with who I believe have been negatively affected by taking courses more than once um, Mm. because they didn't do so well the first time. So I just encourage you to be, you know, really clear that you're as ready as you can be to take any of the prerequisite courses that might be required for your pre-professional degree. And I think one of the big, and we're going to talk a little bit more about combined degree programs or early entry programs, but one of the big issues I see with students who are very pre-professionally focused, um, I don't think it's an issue in and of itself. What I see sometimes crop up with those students is that not only do they want to be a vet, they want to be a vet tomorrow. So, you know, they've decided that this is what they're going to do and they want to cram as much as they can into today rather than letting it unfold at the pace at which it's designed to unfold. And that's where you get yourself into trouble with trying to cram in too many of your prerequisite courses or trying to only focus in math and science for something like um, vet school in high school when they're really hoping to see you get broadly educated in high school. So one of the bottom line takeaways I would have from the things that Marge and I are talking about right now is uh, rule number one is don't rush it. 
you're going to get there. Um, you're probably not going to get there by 22. You may have to be you know, a little bit older, and that's okay. And um, sometimes that's an actual really a bonus for you to arrive there a little bit at a, a slightly older, more mature age, um, and you'll be more ready for things as they come. So let's talk about one of the things that the question um, highlighted, which I thought was really important, is what kind of tips you have for outside activities for students who are maybe more pre-professionally focused. So what do you think is important for students who aspire to professional programs to be thinking about when they think about what they're doing outside of the classroom? And I think for the pre-professional programs that it's actually really important to think about this long and hard because it serves lots and lots of purposes. So, for example, any of the outside experience, whether it's high school experience or college experience, is going to, you know, help a student, you know, test their interests. Is this really what I'm interested in? Um, develop their interests, understand that, you know, a veterinarian is needed in more than companion care, and also refine their interests. So if I'm an engineer and I'm interested in that field, is it mechanical engineering or is it biomedical engineering or is it computer science engineering? So I think that's really a piece of um, the outside activities. I think the other thing it does is it really helps a student gain experience for applications. So whether that's Mm -hmm. a college application or whether that is more appropriately a graduate school education. They're going to typically be asked, you know, why do you want to do this? And all of those outside experiences may really drive some of the answers that you share with your institutions. I also think that outside experiences can feed into recommendations. So whether that's You know, that's usually not going to be from a high school to college type situation, but it could be. I can see where, I don't know, maybe one of your science teachers in high school is actually also a retired veterinarian. I don't know. And you get to spend some time with them outside of the classroom. But more likely, it's going to be after you graduate from college and you're applying to your professional school. And then I think it's also great... um, whether it's on um, an, whether it's involving an application to undergraduate school or whether it's involving the application to graduate school, that it's interview prep. That you know, inevitably, many of these um, combined BSMD programs are going to lead into an interview situation, and many of the professional programs are also going to require an interview. So you're going to be asked not only to write about why this is your field and why you should be perhaps chosen over somebody else, but you're also going to um, have to articulate that often verbally. Um, So there's lots of very powerful reasons. Uh, Some of these graduate schools, veterinary schools especially, have a minimum requirement for the number of hours that you need to do outside of the classroom. And as always, the minimum is nowhere near what the most successful applicants to veterinary school have. So typically, I think it's, I don't know, like 500 hours, 100 to 500 hours, and many of the most successful have close to 2,500 hours. And I don't know whether you want to talk about the possibilities, but I think the same goes with law school or pharmacy school or medical school or engineering school. And yet the experiences will probably look very different. Yeah, no, I I don't want to, we have um, 
our time is running short, and I do want to talk sh- briefly yeah. about combined and early entry programs. But I think, uh, again, a takeaway for me on that is if you have an area of interest, get involved in that area of interest whenever possible. Um, they're certainly not going to expect you to have 2,500 hours of experience as a high school senior applying into your undergraduate program. But if you're expressing an interest in working mm-hmm. with animals and you've done nothing related to that in high school, they might wonder about that, whether or not that's really a true interest. And then you can de- develop that interest in, in a little bit more when you are in college. Okay, so very quickly, um, what do you think about combined or early entry programs for students who are, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, the, the BSMD programs or there are pharmacy programs where you can enter and start that, working towards your degree as a freshman and it can shorten the time that you actually have to spend in school in some cases, not all, but in some. Sure. Um, I actually think that they are a program worth looking at for any student interested in these pre-professional degrees. But I also think that they're not for everybody. And I often have asked the students I've worked with to eventually apply to a mix of schools. Um, some BSMD programs um, or that they are knowledgeable about the fact that many veterinary schools will have an early entry option depending upon the school that they're considering and that they look at that very carefully. I think the, the piece that has always played out for me in my work is that the student who's successful in getting into the joint program tends to be the student with incredibly wonderful academic records and perhaps slightly more maturity than many of the students coming out of high school. Again, referencing back to a comment I made earlier that, you know, you're going to be asked to write about why at this early stage, and specifically I'm talking about the SMD program, you know that medicine is right for you. And it might even be that at some of the BSMD programs my students have considered, they then found themselves in front of a doctor who is part of the committee for the joint program, having to explain to them why they should be, why they think they're ready at this early date to be accepted into medical school. So I think they're great, but I would ask students to make sure that they are covering schools with a traditional approach to their interest as well as a joint um, approach to their interest. And I think many of us know this, but let me just put it on the table, that when you're looking at a joint program, um, specifically BSMD, but even the, even the early entry veterinary programs and the, the joint pharmaceutical programs, is that getting into those programs make the selectivity of the institution or the selectivity of that, that selectivity of those programs can be very high. Yes. And so you've got to make sure you've covered your bases. Absolutely. Marge, thank you so much. There's some really great information there. I really appreciate it. And to our listeners, don't go away. Kathy Ruby is going to be here after the break to talk about work and college. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. 
For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. On the morning of August 5th, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. For those parents and students who are trying to figure out whether or not it's a good idea to work in college, and I will tell you that we are discussing this in my house right now. My stepson has decided where he's going to go, and now one of the big questions is, is he going to work while he's there? Um, Kathy Ruby, who is the former senior, uh, actually the former dean of student financial aid at St. Olaf College, Kathy is here um, to talk us through some things about working in college. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good. Good to be here. Good. good. I'm glad to have you back. So let's start with that first big question. Why should my student work in college? Any good reasons? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There are actually a ton of good reasons for your student to work in college. And the very first one, of course, has to do with money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> earning some money is a great thing to do while you're in college. So certainly, you know, most parents that I talk to are thrilled to have their child earning some money while they're in college. And, and we're not talking thousands and thousands of dollars, but just to earn some money to pay for books and personal expenses and for students to learn how to manage their own money. Um, Mm -hmm. That's one great reason. Um, Another great reason that people don't often think about is time management. And, you know, there's, there's actually some research that shows that kids who work in college do better academically. Now, up mm-hmm. to a certain point, we're not talking working 20 hours a week, but working five to 10 hours a week can help a new college student structure their time a little better because the biggest problem or the biggest problem with the transition from high school to college is that when you get to college, you're not actually in class that much compared yes. to when you were in high school. So you have big open blocks of time that you have to learn how to manage and having a job can actually help you structure that time a little better um, and help you, you know, keep yourself on task. 
So yeah, time management with, is another um, good reason. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to oh. interrupt. But I was I was just going to say, I've seen similar research around student athletes. Same thing. Yes. They have other things to do, and therefore they're better at managing their time. And I think this is a big one for why to work in college. But yes. you have a few more, so let me not interrupt you. Keep oh, going. Oh, no, that's okay. Because that, I mean, that is a big one. Um, I think another way, another reason is because it gives your student another connection to the community in a way that's not academic. I mean, students who work in college are working in all different offices with all different kinds of people, but they have another set of adults sort of watching out for them. So I will say when we had students working in the financial aid office at the colleges where I worked, they were pretty well taken care of in terms of uh, care packages during finals. We were making Mm -hmm. sure they were at work and, you know, sort of looking at them, making sure they were awake and on track. So it's a whole nother set of adults who will be watching out for your child. Um, obviously, just getting some work experience is a, is a good thing. Um, sometimes the work experience is highly related to what the student's career might be going forward, but other times not. Um, but, but, you know, actually on an informal survey of college coach finance experts, I think about half of us worked as student workers in the financial aid office and then ended up working in higher education one way or another. Um, so, you know, lots of great experience. And then, of course, just the experience of having a job. I think in today's busy world, a lot of high school students don't have that opportunity as much in mm-hmm. high school. And so empl- future employers, in many ways, they don't care what job it is, but they do want to see that a person knows how to have a job, you know, show up, be on time, follow instructions. You know, this actually can help build a resume. Yeah, and I think showing up on time, working for someone that you're not related to, or perhaps that, you know, someone didn't pull a string and get you an internship, but, you know, a real job. And um, I do love your point about sometimes it's not glamorous, and sometimes it leads to careers. I mean, I look at my own experience in college. I did work always, all four years, and um, my jobs ranged from working in the sandwich shop, which Mm -hmm. was good for the free food, but didn't really make the resume. Um, Two, I worked for a local women's, um, abused women's center, helping to put together flyers, which led to um, some great marketing experience. And then um, I also did some work in the business school for their alumni magazine, where I did Mm -hmm. some writing and stuff like that. And those pieces both went on my resume. So I think great points there. Absolutely. Can... So another big question is whether or not anyone who wants to work on campus can do that or if there are restrictions on who can actually get an on-campus job. Yeah, and that that will really vary from college to college. But most of the time, if somebody wants to work in college, there, there will hopefully be opportunities for that to happen. But let's just clarify a little bit. If a student is awarded work-study um, on their financial aid award, that's actually a form of need-based financial aid. So on most campuses, students who have work-study in their financial aid award are given priority in hiring. Um, and so that's a good thing if you've been awarded work-study. But that mm-hmm. being said, if you're student was not awarded work-study, many colleges, um, depending on their labor force and what kinds of jobs they have, um, they many colleges will allow students who don't have work-study to work on campus. Sometimes they'll refer to it as campus work or college work-study instead of federal or state work-study, um, but many times anybody who wants to work on campus can work. Same. Um, it's just a question of digging into that at the college that your student is planning to attend. Right. 
Um, And some of the places that, you know, for students who don't have work-study, in some, you know, at some schools, they'll just, for a certain period of time, only work-study students can apply for jobs, and then they open it up to everyone, or they may have certain categories of jobs that are only open um, to you if you don't, if you have campus work-study. So things like the bookstore and the food service, those are often outsourced, Mm -hmm. Um, so often they're open to any student who wants to work. Um, So it just depends on the college, but most of the time, somebody who wants to work can work, and Quite honestly, in all of the colleges that I worked at, <laughs> the food service was always looking for a few good students. <laughs> always. And always. You know, at every college I've ever visited, there's always been some kind of a college town there that yes. wasn't necessarily affiliated specifically with the university. I mean, when there are students, there are usually things for students to do off campus. And so you, know, if you can't get the job right there on campus. There are usually plenty to be had um, in the surrounding town, yes, at least in absolutely. my experience. I mean, the, the advantage of on-campus, of course, is the convenience. But the yes. but working in town, you know, sometimes can actually be more lucrative depending on what the college's wage rate is. So it just depends on the situation. But certainly look into it, even if you don't have work-study. Um, my right. daughter doesn't have work-study. She's been working in food service, and actually she's been promoted to a student manager, which also looks good. Again, not glamorous, but it got her some free food, and it got her a, and clearly she's progressed through their ranks, so that's a good yes. thing. And that is nice to see. And in, in, in our experience, so our stepson has a job at a company here in town that also has a branch in the town where he's going to be going to college. And so if he decides yes. to, he'll be able to actually just transfer right up to that um, that place and kind of maintain the position he's already attained at his current job. So that's something else for students to look for um, yes. as an option. Excellent. Uh, how do students get their jobs? Uh, I know how I used to get mine. I don't know if things have changed much, but um, <laughs> maybe it has. <laughs> well, I think it, it has in that it's probably more online than it used to be. Now, there are, you know, there are a few schools out there that still provide assignments to students who have work-study. Um, mm-hmm. So there are some colleges that do it that way. Um, but most of the time, students have to go look for the jobs and apply for them themselves. And in, in today's world, that usually happens online. So if you're reading through the terms and conditions of your student's financial aid award, it should talk about how a student gets a job. Um, our advice there is to start early. So if your student is interested in working on campus, find that online job board, find out how early they can start applying for jobs for the fall, and and start on that even during the summer. Um, because many times those jobs are first come, first serve. The other thing to be aware of is that when your student arrives on campus and they, you know, they try to find a job and maybe they're unsuccessful in the beginning, they should keep looking because lots mm-hmm. of times in the beginning of the year, everybody wants to work. Everybody thinks they want, want to work. Um, but after the first few weeks of the semester, things settle out a little bit. Um, people realize they can't work 15 hours a week. They cut back their hours. Sometimes jobs open up after the first few weeks of a semester. So it, it should be an ongoing pursuit if it doesn't happen in that first week. And that is great advice. I wish that I had taken when I was in college because I think sometimes I settled for a job I didn't love because I couldn't find anything else. But if I would have waited a week or two, I might have, some things might have opened up. And another thing that I used to see a lot of when I was in college, and I would guess probably still happens, is, um, you know, the professor's family, maybe they're looking for a babysitter or um, someone to walk the dogs. I mean, there are, to that point of maybe being off campus, just the surroundings 
surrounding area, there are sometimes those more non-traditional jobs that you're not necessarily thinking about, but that can exist as well for students. Yes, absolutely. Just being connected with people and letting them know you're looking for work. So, of course, you want to go through the formal channels, the student, you know, the the online job board, but you also want to just be making informal connections with people who may hear about things and may let you know about openings. The other thing to know, and you might want to be a little prepared before you go, is some of these jobs will require a resume. Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe even an interview. So you'll want to be thinking about that, um, how you want to be prepared for that. And I know it sounds pretty nerve-wracking, but um, usually these are fairly informal, but still you want to be prepared to present yourself well. Yes, exactly. And um, you shouldn't worry too much about having to get too dressed up. I will tell... An embarrassing story. I was, um, I actually graduated from college and I moved to a town with a lot of colleges and I was looking for some temporary work while I um, interviewed for other jobs. And I went to an interview at a student, some student job type of position in a full suit with, you know, the pantyhose and the heels and everything. And they looked at me like I had three heads and I didn't get the job. And <laughs> I was a little more casual for the rest of my opportunities, which was probably good. Yeah. So, professional. Fast. You don't want to be, you know, too dressed down, but you don't have to dress way up. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Any other advice for students who decide to work in college? Well, I think um, the first is to take it seriously. I mean, I think, I think one of the rumors that's out there about student work is that, oh, it means, or, or work study, is that you get to work while you study. Um, And sometimes that's the case. Some of these jobs will be jobs where you're sitting in the entrance of a dorm or an athletic center and you're just checking people in and you get to do homework while you're doing that. But many times these are jobs that have real responsibility, you know, real things to do, real things that need to be done. And while, you know, if you're working on campus, your supervisor is very likely to be someone who recognizes that you're a student and is willing to be flexible, but you still have to be professional and respect that there's a job that has to be, that has to be done, you know, and that mm-hmm. people have work schedules that have to be adhered to. And, and I, it can be intimidating. I know um, my daughter has had, that's one of the great skills that you learn, actually. Another reason to work in, in college is that you learn to work with a supervisor and, and let them know, you know, in enough time that you might need to change your schedule, um, all those kinds of things that I, we as adults take for granted, but young people who haven't had jobs are intimidated by. So do take it seriously. And um, I think that's great advice um, because there are people will depend on you. So if you're not going to be showing up, you want to let them know, or better yet, don't not show up. <laughs> take right. it seriously to your point. And, and as flexible as supervisors are, if you don't, if you just don't show up more than once, that will probably have a consequence and it could mean that you don't keep your job. So yeah, you really do have to, uh, have to, you know, treat it as if it's a real job because it is a real job. It's a part-time job and it will, you know, you get paid for it. Um, The other thing, the other piece of advice I'd have is to be willing to try new things. If you really want to work in college and you want to have some money, (laughs) you may have to try some things that you weren't planning on. And, you know, we've already talked about how the food service is always looking for people because it's not the most glamorous job. But those are the jobs that are often available. Those are the jobs where you'll meet some very interesting people. You'll get to know people who are working to run the college rather than, you know, being at the college and going to class. Mm-hmm. So it's a great way to meet a broad range of people and gain some really good experience for later on when you're in the real working world. 
So be willing to try those new things. (laughs) I think that's great advice. All of it, great advice. Thank you so much, Kathy. I really appreciate it. All right. Uh, Last And we'll have you back in the future, too. I'm sure we'll have lots of other things to talk about. But last week, I invited our listeners to send in questions about developing and distinguishing excellence. And you did. Thank you. So after the break, I'm going to answer them. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Last week, former Yale admissions officer Amy Alexander joined me and we talked about Ivy League admissions and not just the Ivy League, but also highly other highly selective institutions, places like Stanford and MIT. One of the things that we touched on was the importance of extracurricular activities. Uh, and for many students who are going to be successful in these applicant pools of having a distinguishing excellence. And this piece is so important that I didn't really, we didn't dig into it really last week. And instead, we decided to devote an entire segment to this topic. Um, And as I mentioned before the break, we asked you to send in your questions, which you did. And I really thank you for that, because that makes this piece a whole lot easier and hopefully more informative for you. And now my colleague, Erica Braley, is here, and she's going to read me the questions, and I'm going to do my best to answer them. Hi, Erica. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well. We've got a lot of really great questions. All right. So why don't we just jump right in? Fire away. Sure. This one seems like a good starting place. Um, this listener says, I was listening to the show last week, and you mentioned something about a distinguishing excellence. What is that exactly? Well, that is, of course, a great question. It is the primary question, right? I didn't really dig into it at all last week. I kind of just used that term. Um, I stole the term. We use it here at College Coach, but we kind of um, lifted it from a couple of colleagues who used to work in the Harvard admissions office. And it's a term uh, that I think they use quite a bit around their Uh, committee table when they are talking about students. And frequently they will say something like, well, what is his DE? What is her DE? And DE stands for Distinguishing Excellence. And really what it is is a DE represents significant achievement in a particular area. It could be an academic area, something like science or writing or mathematics. It could be an extracurricular activity like debate or music or journalism. And it's not, a DE isn't just getting all A's in science or being president of your school's debate team. Those can be really important pieces of a DE, but a DE itself really encompasses much more continuous and measurable success that goes way beyond what you're doing in high school to regional or national or even international recognition. So an example that I would give is a few years ago, I worked with a young woman who is probably actually already graduated from one of the most selective schools in the country. And she was um, an incredibly talented mathematician. And she actually was on the national math team and was on then the international women's math team, which, by the way, I had no idea even existed until I started working with her. But that's a great example of a really impressive distinguishing excellence. Great. Um, the next question is a two-parter. Um, the listener wants to know, why does it matter, and is it something that every college is looking for? Also really good questions. I think a DE could be helpful anywhere you apply. But the reality is that it's really only very important at the most selective schools in the country. So as we talk some more about a DE, um, you know, it might become clear, this isn't necessarily something that's going to come naturally to most students. Um, And that's why it's not something that most colleges will expect. But when you're applying to schools like Stanford or Harvard or Cornell or Dartmouth or really any of the Ivies, those very highly selective institutions, MIT, Caltech, those are some others that come to mind, the students in these schools' applicant pools, they already have really outstanding grades and great rigor in their curriculum and outstanding test scores. Um, they are leaders outside the classroom. So they have all of those pieces. So when you're reading those files as an admissions officer, so when I worked at Penn, um, you know, I was constantly asking myself, you know, how is this applicant unique? How is this applicant going to contribute? Why should I admit this person instead of, you know, the 20 other files that I'm reading today or actually the 29 other files that I'm reading today um, who are also really academically talented? And the answer there is really a DE, a distinguishing excellence. That's the thing. So um, that's why it matters because it helps students who otherwise look very similar to one another to really stand out. And um, again, I do want to really emphasize the fact that 
This is not the expectation at most schools. It's really only at the highly selective level that they start to look for this distinguishing excellent. I feel like that plays um, really well into this next um, set of questions, which um, the listener asks, can every student get a distinguishing excellence and does every student need one? So I think in the previous answer, hopefully the one clear takeaway, because I'm really, we're not here to try to increase stress levels. We are here to try to decrease stress (laughs) levels. And so one thing I really would love for everyone who's listening to take away is that, no, every student does not need a DE. In fact, the vast majority of students will not have one. And the fact is that not every student can have one. It's it's got to be something that's somewhat intrinsic to the student where they have something that they are so interested in that they are really going to just devote themselves to that activity for an extended period of time and in many different ways. And that's just not the average kid. So there's still lots of room for the student who's really more well-rounded, who does lots of things, or who does a few things. Um, there are more than 3,700 colleges in this country, and very few of them are actually selective at all. Um, so very few turn away more students than they admit every year. So no, every student does not need one. And at the same time, no, probably every student can't have one. Uh, you can work towards one, but I would say that as a parent, there's only so much you can do to push your child in this direction, and a lot of it really does have to come from them. And um, you mentioned that there are definitely students who have a lot of different interests and um, participate in a number of different activities. And this next question um, comes from a listener who says, my daughter has a lot of interests, including writing, playing the violin, and rowing crew. Can all of those be a distinguishing excellence for her? And if not, how do I help her figure out which one to focus on? Can all of those be a distinguishing excellence? It's Sure, it's possible. It is possible that someone could be a super talented writer to the point where they were editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, writing for the local paper in town, attending a highly selective summer program that where acceptance was based on the level of talent to the writing. Also play the violin at an extremely high level, play for the local um, youth symphony, symphony orchestra, perhaps win some competitions in the violin, maybe even play Carnegie Hall before they um, have graduated from high school, and then also manage to fit in rowing crew and be so good at that that the coaches at colleges of interest were taking note and um, offering them opportunities to do official visits and to be officially recruited. Sure, it's possible. I would say it is highly unlikely. Um, That just described probably a super person who does not exist, the idea that you could (laughs) somehow be that good at all of those things, um, because I don't think you could have the time to really do all of those things. So one mistake that I see is um, students who really, if they're trying to, dev- to you know, sort of develop a DE, is trying to do too much and not focusing enough. So what I would recommend for your daughter would be that she sort of lists out her, what is she interested in academically? Um, what is she interested in outside of the classroom? 
which area of the three has she already received the most recognition in? So sometimes at this point, if the student is a sophomore, it may already become clear that one of these is really the place where she's standing out um, particularly, and the others are really fun and she enjoys them, but she's not necessarily a standout. Um, And it would be great if the one in which she'd received the most recognition also is the one that she's the most passionate about because you do kind of have to weigh those things. It's great if you've already received a ton of recognition for playing the violin, but if the passion is for writing, then the writing might be the thing to pursue for that distinguishing excellence because if you're going to really turn something into a distinguishing excellence, you're really going to have to... um, put in a lot of time and energy and get involved in that area in many different ways. So if you just do it because you're kind of good at it, but you don't really enjoy it, it's hard to imagine how that turns into a true distinguishing excellence for a student. So I would say kind of sitting down, making those lists, um, really seeing if um, there is one that emerges as um, as a particular favorite. So, you know, ideally the answer to the question of where you've received the most recognition and where you're most passionate are going to be the same. Um, if they're not, you are going to have a choice to make. If she loves all three, um, I guess there the question would be, is it worth it? Is it worth cutting down on one area to really amp up the involvement in another area? And unless the student is really a super qualified applicant for that most selective level and every other piece is in place or appears like it's going to be in place, um, I don't know necessarily if it's going to be worth it to give up two areas of real interest just to focus on one. So lots of things to think about, um, but I would um, try focusing on those narrowing down a little bit if possible um, by really getting at what is she the most talented in and what does she enjoy the most. Okay, great. Um, and this next question um really plays off of that one very well as well. Um, The listener writes, my son is a really talented scientist. How can he develop that into a distinguishing excellence? So this is a good, a really great question just in general in terms of how do you take something that you're interested in and turning it in, turn it into a distinguishing excellence. Um, So I just talked through a basic piece of, of, of the process, which is first sitting down and saying, okay, well, what do I really enjoy in my studies that I'm doing in the classroom? And is there an area there where I'm really already excelling and that I just, I just can't get enough of it? Um, and then extracurricularly, am I involved in anything there that I really, really enjoy and um, where I'm also kind of emerging as a standout? And then going through the questions about where you've received the most recognition, thinking about what you're most passionate about, and then really kind of focusing. In this case, it sounds like your son has decided that science is the thing for him. So I like to go through a few different areas to think about. So the first is coursework. And the question here is, are there opportunities for you to pursue your distinguishing excellence in the classroom? And you want to look year by year to see what's offered in your area and ideally plan to take all of those classes before graduation if possible. So, for example, he might want to take, maybe there's an option to do a science survey course freshman year 
or to do an honors bio course. And if he's qualified to take the honors bio course, he might want to do that. And then maybe he wants to do honors chemistry as a sophomore and honors physics as a junior. And then in his senior year, maybe he's going to double up um, and do AP chemistry and AP physics or AP chemistry and AP bio or AP bio and AP physics. So he's going to take a couple of higher level science courses as a senior. Maybe he's replacing one of his five cores with that. Maybe he's simply going to just add a sixth course. Um, but either way, the key is if the interest is in science specifically, you want to really take advantage of all the science options. You certainly want to take care of the big three, chemistry, bio, and physics. Um, and you want to go to the highest level available if you can in those areas. And if you're shooting for the Ivy, that's the expectation. So ideally, you can go to the highest level. And I, you could apply this to any subject area. History, you just want to make sure you're doing taking advantage of all the history options. If it's English, same thing, right? So it applies regardless of um, the category you're thinking about. On the testing front, are there particular subject tests that will measure your abilities in your area of excellence? And you want to make a plan to take those tests no later than the fall of senior year so that those scores can be considered as part of your application. So in the case of someone interested in science, there's a chemistry, a bio, and a physics subject test. Maybe realistically, won't be able to prepare for all three of those, but it's possible. Maybe honors bio is adequate preparation for the subject test at your high school, and maybe you want to take the subject test at the end of freshman year, right after you've taken the honors bio course, and so on. And so he might actually have three subject tests taken even by the end of junior year. And then a next one would be about extracurricular activities that are available in the school. So regardless of whether the DE is academic or extracurricular, you want to be involved inside of, in activities outside of the classroom that are going to allow you to expand on your achievements in that area. And so you want to think about what's available in my school or my community, and you want to get involved. So if your school has a science team, well, there you go. Science kid is going to need to join the science team and ideally plan to become president of the science team or captain of the science team by the time he's a senior. Anything else science-related, maybe there's an opportunity to do research locally, um, something like that would be another way to show off um, science skill in an extracurricular activity. What about if you are in a situation where there really aren't any clubs or organizations that are in your area of excellence, or the ones that are available really aren't advanced enough to be engaging or all that challenging for you or for the student. A great way to overcome that obstacle and set yourself apart is to create your own opportunity. Maybe you get an internship, maybe you find a research position, you found a club, you start a business. Um, So thinking about ways you can create opportunities. And same thing goes with the summer. You want to be looking for opportunities to take part in a selective summer program where you're going to be able to focus on your distinguishing excellence. In general, you want them to require a certain level of skill or achievement in order to be admitted. So rather than just, you know, your parents can afford to write the check, it's really more about um, your skill set is what's going to make you competitive. And then finally, last two things, competitions, entering any competitions that might allow you to showcase your ability, uh, and then making sure that at least one of your teacher recommendations comes from a teacher in your subject area if your DE is scientific, or I'm sorry, academically related. Um, if it's an extracurricular activity and not academically related, you might want to get a recommendation letter from someone other than um, a teacher in addition to the two teacher recs that you have. 
So that's how you go about developing and distinguishing excellence, and I'm run right up against it to the end of our time here. But I want to thank you. Thank you so much, Erica. Thanks to all my guests today. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about essays again. My colleague, Sally Ganga, and I are compiling our best essay stories, and you are not going to believe what some people chose to wrote about, write about. Um, and we're going to be doing our best to give you some great tips while sharing some funny stuff at the same time. And college finance expert Alex Bickford is also going to be here to talk through the basics of saving for college. It's not quite as simple as just tossing money into a 529 every month. Well, it could be, but it's not for everybody. Anyway, don't forget, come back next week. We're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.